This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, guys, we are... Uh, weekly roundup coming at you with a special guest today. We obviously have Santi per usual. Santi back in the house. Looks like he did some home renovations, perhaps. Uh, I, I feel like this is a new blue background, but maybe he can tell me I'm wrong. And Byron, for those who read the Blockworks daily newsletter, we have the writer of the newsletter in the flesh, Mr. Byron. Uh, forget how to pronounce your last name, Byron Gilliam or something like that. So Byron, welcome to the show. Close enough. <laughs> good, good. Uh, Santi, new background? It is new background. Yeah, I love blue. I only wear blue most of the time, and so had to be blue. But you know, we also have the the more traditional background of fake wallpaper, which I, I love. I, I've taken an affinity and appreciation for wallpaper. All right, so here's the flow. We're going to talk about a couple things. FTX. We're going to talk about Terra and Luna and this billion dollar Bitcoin raise. We're going to talk about NFTs, and actually, we're going to go back to the Coinbase hack, which obviously didn't happen this week, but last last week or two weeks ago or whenever it was. But I just want to comment on it for a sec, and then at the very end, we'll just give some commentary on. Uh, just kind of the state of the markets and things like that. But first things first, FTX. So here's what happened with FTX this week. This kind of went under the radar. FTX takes aim at the $300 billion luxury goods market and hires a beauty entrepreneur to head the push, right? FTX hired uh, this woman, this uh, great entrepreneur, Lauren Remington Platt, to work on partnerships with luxury and fashion brands. And this to me is, oh, I, there's this amazing picture for those who are watching on YouTube. This is the picture that went out, which has yeah. just got to be the best <laughs> photo shoot picture I have ever seen in my life. It's like they just grabbed Sam and said, Sam, your photo shoot is right now. And he's like, holy shit, I forgot we were doing a photo Clearly shoot. Clearly the, the, the fashion uh, expert is on the right, not on the left. <laughs> yeah, fashion oh, expert on the right. Yeah. He put some shoes on, so I, I would bet that he had no shoes on when they grabbed him for the photo shoot. He said, hold on, let me, uh, let me get ready. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, guys. So, this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Let's just look at the progression of FTX for a second. FTX launches on the back of this successful Alameda um, trading, right, uh, trading firm in like, they launched in like 2019, I think it was. FTX, big first big acquisition was, uh, was Blockfolio. Right, Edmund caught his company, Blockfolio, bought them for like 150 million in kind of, I think it was like mid May of 2020, I want to say. Then FTX starts making a big push into sports teams, right? Retail. So Blockfolio, biggest, uh, biggest retail app back then for just like checking the prices. Then you had sports teams uh, advertised, obviously, at the Super Bowl this year. They sponsored the Miami Heat Stadium or bought the Miami Heat Stadium naming rights. That's also retail. That's sports. Then they launched this NFT platform. Again, pretty retail focused. Then they signed up Giselle and Tom Brady. Now they get this beauty entrepreneur, Lauren Remington, to get into luxury and fashion and beauty, right? And my takeaway here is that FTX is just really, really, really prioritizing retail with some of these things. And specifically, actually, that they think maybe 
not just the spot markets are going to be huge for retail. So I think a lot of other folks are thinking like retail and like retail traders and the spot markets, but FTX is making a massive push uh, prioritizing retail and you know, I'll some other takes as well into where maybe they're going, but Byron and Santi just want to get your takes on, on th this big push into retail for FTX. Well, I mean, <clears throat> maybe I'll go off and Byron, please jump in whenever. Um, I, I think, you know, crypto has and continues to be a retail phenomenon. Um, like we, we don't have a lot of like front facing, like consumer applications, like other than obviously the use case of trading and, but, but for the most part, I mean, like most of the market continues to be retail driven. And like, if you look at the biggest empires that have been created in crypto have been, you know, some like Binance, FTX. And so I think what's interesting now is when you layer on top of NFTs, I think NFTs have brought in a whole host of people that are more, you know, it's a different crowd, right? That perhaps existed historically in crypto, where it was just kind of a pure trader, maybe more, I, I would argue the composition of mostly skewing probably male uh, and kind of sophisticated around like has the same people that kind of like are on Robin Hood, for instance. Um, but with NFTs, I think, I think a big part of this push into luxury has been NFTs. Uh, and it's impressive to see the volume of NFTs is not showing weakness maybe maybe recently but it hasn't been shown weakness th this year nfts are, are have brought in a whole new type of crowd that naturally i think you want to layer on a top a, a other type of services um that will match and and expand and enter into the luxury right you see companies like adidas and and gucci and a bunch of others that are now thinking about nfts and so I, I think that's where all this is going yeah Byron, give us give us your your bear take, Byron here. Uh, well, I'm a I'm, I have a bull take on that. I mean, I think they're going in the right direction. I think for uh, crypto to uh, go mainstream and get significantly bigger, it's going to have to be retail driven. Um, like one one of the things that I've recently decided that is that uh, um, you know I think that it, it, it seems like the crypto natives uh, all make the assumption that um, as soon as TradFi gets the green light to invest in crypto, that there's going to be this tidal wave of investment and that and that valuations are going to take this giant step change higher uh, and that the thing that's holding crypto back is just that, and, you know, traditional asset managers are not allowed to invest in it. I don't, I'm feeling like they, that's not really the case. Like, I, I think that if you, if all asset managers had a full green light to invest in crypto right now, I think the flows would be really underwhelming. Because um, I think that they just would, you know, there are just not that many investment options that would appeal to traditional um, asset managers. Uh, so I think I think FTX for that reason is is one going in the right direction and two doing the right thing for for crypto as a whole. Because I think for crypto to get a lot bigger, it's going to have to be retail driven. What do you mean by? that there's not that many investment opportunities in crypto because obviously the I mean, that's like the venture space is $33 billion worth of inflows on the venture side of things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, but we're, we are getting the, the venture flows already. And I do think it's, I do think the, the venture capital is going to do very well. Um, but that's like investing in the seed round and then selling the governance tokens, right? Like that's, that is going to be an amazing investment case for a long time, I think. Um, but in terms of uh, looking at uh, tokens the way that traditional asset managers would look at stocks, um, 
I don't think that they would love what they see. Um, like, I think that crypto is going to be, uh, you know, is going to be structurally low margin for a long, long time, probably forever, which is great. That's like a really good thing for the world, but not a great thing if you're an investor, right? Um, you know, TradFi returns are mostly made uh, by building uh, moats and extracting rents, right? And there are just not a lot of moats in crypto and there's not a lot of rent extraction, which again is fantastic. That makes it, you know, a much better thing for the world. It just does not make it a much better thing for investors. And if I think, you know, if investors had a full green light to invest in crypto, I think they would look at it and be like, you know, this is not, you know, this is not what we're used to. These are not the moats and these are not the, you know, the, not the rent extraction that we're used to. Um, and I, I just don't, I don't think they would, uh, I, I don't think there would be a tidal wave of, of money coming out of TradFi to, to invest in crypto. Although I, I agree. Like, I think, I think that's like how perhaps a more traditional investor might think like, what are the, it's moats in web three are very different than moats. I think in web two and the ability to, how you think about like value accrual and extraction is different, but like I, I've been talking increasingly like this week, I talked to one of the largest like concert venue ticketing slash event venues company in Mexico. And they were like, okay, NFTs are interesting. I'm like, guys, like, fine, you make this money on just ticket sales, but NFTs, like, why wouldn't you issue tickets as NFTs? Like, it then allows you to capture a lot of this value from the secondary market that you're not capturing today. So, like, that would be, for instance, a new way to capture value. Or artists, right, they're minting these NFTs, and now they can make money on resales that perhaps they wouldn't have done before. And or I, I think, like, what I'm trying to say is that I think the value capture is going to be different or maybe the same, but it's just going to be distributed differently. Whereas perhaps historically auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's were the ones that made the most amount of money or founders were the ones and investors were the one that made the most amount of money, like for first investors in Uber or whatever. But now I think there's a redistribution of economics going to more towards creators. And yeah, Byron, like I, I think that naturally for that reason, uh, investment funds, that have profited and made so much money off of web two and the way the venture is structured is different, right? Or even TradFi investors, right? That are investing pre IPO or IPO rounds. Like that's where most of the money gets made. These stupid like accreditation rules and all this stuff, but that, that that's shifting. And I think a lot of that value trickles down or not even trickles down. It's just going direct more directly to people like creators and or retail investors that are just closer and just participating in these networks. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I just, I just think that uh, it's the 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 value creation in crypto is going to be so different from TradFi that uh, it's not really going to be crypto tokens uh, taking money away from investment in you know the S and P five hundred. Uh, it's going to be that's going to be retail money and it's going to be crypto native money and it's it's just going to be different. Yeah. So this is a really interesting bet by FTX, right? Because I think when people when people look at most startups, it's like, yeah, in your third year, what should you be doing? Focus, focus, focus. Well, let's look at FTX's different business lines here. First with the luxury market, right? FTX, this is a $300 billion luxury goods market, which folks are saying is going to grow 
by like 50 billion in the next couple of years. And we've been seeing fashion and beauty brands increasingly get into crypto just as, you know, the pandemic has forced people to get out of these brick and mortar stores and into like online and digital. And I think the thought is that this pushes these fashion and beauty stores even more into like the metaverse, right? So in February alone, some brands that filed for metaverse related trademarks, Victoria's Secret, uh, L'Oreal, Kiehl's, Pink, right? Adidas, Nike, we talked about before. Like these are brands that are pushing heavily into the metaverse and FTX wants to play a role in that. And I think when you look at their, so they have five areas of business. I think everyone thinks of FTX as this big trading firm, right? But really there's a lot more than that. First first area of business, trading, like spot trading. They've got the fourth, fourth highest, uh, fourth largest exchange by volume, right? So it goes Binance, OKX, Coinbase, and then FTX is creeping up on Coinbase. I think Coinbase is about... 24-hour volume, like $5 billion, um, and FTX is about $3 billion. So that's the spot exchange. Then you've got derivatives, right? FTX is one of the only places in the U.S. outside of like, I think, CME Group probably, and maybe one other, where you can trade uh, where you can trade regulated derivatives in the U.S. and not like VPN into somewhere else. And they did that through their acquisition of uh, LedgerX. Then they've got the gaming division. The episode with Amy Wu comes out on Sunday. The, uh, so in two days from now, the, the episode with Amy Wu comes out. It's really, really interesting. It's crazy how much FTX... So FTX this week also debuted FTX Gaming, right? Where really what they're offering, they spent over a billion dollars on licensing in the last year. They're really offering a crypto as a service platform to help gaming companies launch tokens and offer these NFTs. Then you've got the NFT business where they launched an NFT marketplace trying to compete with Coinbase and OpenSea and things like that. And then they've got this white labeled business that barely anyone knows about, but that Amy shared some details on where what they're trying to do is white label the entire FTX platform, custody, right? Trading, lending, borrowing, all that kind of stuff into like fintech platforms, like the Revoluts, Monzos, and 26s of the world. So you've got these five business models. It really does to me feel like FTX, like Sam is just very aware of market opportunities that could 100x from here. And he's trying to go after every single one of them. I'm not sure we've seen a startup ever in history blitz scale like this. Amazon? Um, Amazon blitz, they did it differently and they did it later, right? Like it took them... I mean, I think that's also because you didn't have the distribution pipes of the internet like they were still getting built while the internet was getting built concurrently. Whereas FTX can leverage a lot of the distribution pipes of the internet. But yeah, I mean, Amazon started just with books and it took them actually quite a while, I think, to get out into, how long did it take? Probably 15 years until they launched like their AWS business. Sam and what they're doing with FTX, this is like Amazon launching books and then one year later launching AWS is what it feels like to me. I I think like uh, there's a really good book called The Everything Store. Fantastic about the history of Amazon. I think Amazon was at the brink of, it probably would have gone down had it not raised, I think it had it not IPO to raise around like right before the crash. And it's kind of interesting to think about that. Uh, obviously, to your point, Jason, like they started with a very narrow case of books and most people were, were like just looking at that and focused on that. And then they've expanded to so many others, um, which has been pretty fascinating. Um, and AWS has been a huge cash cow. It came years later, right? Um, but but you had to be, importantly, I think in this environment where like a lot of people were just shouldering the costs, like the same way that you see in a lot of these startups on Web2, like Ubers and Airbnbs of the world, like their unit economics 
kind of are not as solidified. And then the hope is that over time they become better business models and retain and like enter this flywheel. But I think largely those type of business models have succeeded because you've been in this environment of low of record low interest rates where people are just chasing yield and doing, you know, loosening their, their discipline. I don't know if that would have been able to exist and these businesses would have been able to take, get off the ground had it not been for cheap venture money in the space. Now, the difference with FTX is it's a cash cow. I mean, look at fin- like Binance, these exchanges like just print. And and a lot of it's again, it's retail, right? And so you're able to extract potentially like a higher fee. Uh, but these are just, just to your point, Jason, I, I think I would argue that FTX, I mean, it's unfair comparison to your point because of the internet, like now you're leveraging a lot of distribution and the crypto phenomenon that, you know, is using rails of the internet, right? And there's less dependencies on that, but this has been impressive. I remember meeting Sam in Hong Kong and he had Alameda at the time and he was like typically in his slouching, just in his like, like, what do you call those? Like pillows, like the, the lazy boys, beanbag. not lazy boys, but the, the beanbag. Yeah. He was in the beanbag and, and it was like a super small office in Hong Kong and it was all empty. And he's like, I want to build an exchange, but I have no idea how to do that. And I don't have any expertise. And I said, I just, I just had a feeling that he was just a savant. Like when I first like listened to Vitalik and a few other people in crypto, like there are certain people that like operate at a different wavelength. And Sam struck me as someone like that. And at the time, Alameda was like doing the most amount of flow, like in, in, in some of these ODC markets, in Bitcoin. And it was pretty impressive. And then like he, I see six months later, <laughs> After that interaction, I came away super impressed by by, by his operation, but it, it felt like super small, like you know. Yeah. And then FTX launch, and and that that doesn't. It's not too long ago where that happened. That was like in peak bear market, like 2018. And I was on my that was Hong Kong. I was on my way to Binance conference, first conference in Singapore. And then like they have just been relentlessly building, and I think it's, in my estimation, it's probably the best company in crypto. Yeah. Think, do you think he has a uh, like a a uh, carefully modeled out idea on how he could how FTX could make money in gaming or NFTs, or is it more like just he's going to do absolutely everything and see what? Yes, works? I I I, th- I think he does. And here's what I think. Here's what here's what I think FTX is building. I think everyone thinks of them as a spot. I think everyone thinks of FTX as a trading exchange, as a trading company that is getting into other things. They are building an Amazon for tokens. Right. If if something I think Sam's vision of the future is that everything will have a token and he wants to be the place where those tokens are traded. If something has a token, he wants he wants it traded on FTX. And he's basically building an Amazon for tokens. So I think what will come next. So you've got basically gaming, derivatives, trading, uh, NFTs, and then this white labeled business thing to increase volumes, obviously. What will come next in my mind is stocks, like tokenized equities, which the regulations of that are kind of scary, but like uh, tokenized equities will come and then after that as cap tables of companies get tokenized and DAOs end up becoming a prevalent form of launching a company they will launch a DAO service as well I have no idea I'm speculating here but I think that will be the next two businesses that FTX gets into are tokenized equities and then something with DAOs and I think their business model is just like uh, when you are a game like with gaming specifically Byron if you are a gaming studio they want the gaming studio to build the front end and every single other thing, the licensing, the middleware, the back end, the, the actual, like the blockchain, all that kind of stuff that should be supported by FTX gaming. So, and what, I mean, what's the, what's the business there? It's the web two business where it's like rent seeking, right? Right. So is, is FTX like web 2.5 then? 
I think they're CFI and like there are a lot of CFI companies which are like they're they're great. They've moved the industry forward and honestly jury's out on whether like I think they'll be I think they'll all end up being massive businesses like Coinbase is a CFI company, BlockFi, Gemini. These are CFI companies. Like they are crypto they they operate in crypto but they're not like a 100% like crypto native. Like they're not built on fully crypto rails. They're not decentralized they're, they didn't launch as a DAO. they probably don't hang out in the discord but they are crypto companies and they've done amazing things for the business so i yeah i think there's like there's tradfi there's cfi and there's DeFi, and these are cfi companies and is that good for a space as a whole so ftx is going to advance you know crypto gaming and and nfts and then like decentralized can take over at a later point or is it are they just going to own the whole space i mean mind you like ftx is one of the largest users of decentralized finance it's absolutely good. I mean, how many people walk around the street? How many people do you think of? Many of them have heard about Bitcoin, maybe other stuff, but none of them are using it. Now, I don't think everyone is prepared to like have manage their own keys and venture into the sort of like this wild, you know, fully decentralized environment. I think most people need handholding and they're going to probably go to someone like FTX and, and that's fine. You know, that's totally fine. Yeah. And so, look, I mean, Coinbase obviously has a Coinbase wallet and they are allowing off ramps to L2s. I mean, ultimately, like, I think, I don't know, I, I'm not as concerned about, like, I don't want to dismiss this idea of, like, I'm very much an advocate of decentralization. and But at the end of the day, like, you have hooks into decentralized protocols and settlement. The settlement can happen, but a lot of the users and the user aggregation is going to be very much a centralized, for a lot of a lot of this market, centralized parties like FTX. Yeah. I think and that's um, net positive for everyone. Yeah. I mean, coin, you got to say Coinbase has been net positive. Obviously they brought in 70, 73 million people use their platform. And I think FTX will do what Coinbase did by the way, launching like a MetaMask competitor. That's like an FTX wallet. Um, I think the two interesting things about crypto are it just, I mean, one, it gives you choice, right? So like, I think most people will interact with crypto in a pretty centralized way. But to you have the ability for the first time ever to operate, to, to kind of opt out of the system, the traditional system. And that's really powerful. And then the next thing is just like, it's an improvement of technology, right? Where like, we're not building on ACH and Swift. And so yeah, like, yeah, even though we're just using, I don't know, Coinbase, which is like a centralized platform, it's 100x better experience than using my Bank of America or Chase account, right? So let's move past FTX, lot, lot to cover here. Um, I want to get into Terra and Luna, and I'm going to lean on you guys here uh, to, to help walk me through what really happened and why this is so important. So uh, this week, Terra uh, says Luna, uh, the Luna token sale raised a billion dollars for a Bitcoin reserve. Do you guys want me to take a stab at walking through this or uh, either of you guys, Byron, I'm not sure if you read about this a lot as you were prepping for the newsletter, if you want to walk us through what happened here and your thoughts or or I can take it. Uh, I mean, the TLDR is just that these collateralized UST with a billion dollars of, of Bitcoin, right? Exactly. And the market liked that, I guess, because Luna was up 10% the next day or something. I When I when I read that, I actually expected Luna to be down, but then I guess it kind of made sense that it was up. Because to me, it sounded like, uh, like my knee-jerk reaction was like, oh, he's kind of throwing in the towel on the uh, on the full tokenomics algo stable coin, right? Um, and, and conceding that he needs to collateralize it, which uh, to me sounded like a negative maybe. Um, 
And also my first thought was like, oh, well, now that's a billion dollars of Luna that's going to get sold. But I guess it's that's I guess it's like on a four year schedule or something like that. Um, so I don't know. I kind of uh, uh, I, I, I kind of felt like um, it was maybe an admission that the, the pure tokenomics of Luna were not going to stand on their own. Um, but uh, the market clearly liked it. I guess it I guess it de-risks. Uh, UST to a degree, but then it's also like it's only ten percent collateralized. So I guess my next question is like, what happens now? Is it is it going to go to eighty percent collateralized? Is it going to become frax, or is it just like what? Like, is there a big difference between zero percent collateralized and ten percent collateralized? Uh, it doesn't seem that doesn't seem like much of a difference to me. So where is it going now? Is it going to eighty percent collateralized? That's a great point, Byron. Uh, fantastic take, I actually think uh, my like. Like algorithmic stablecoins are like fascinating from a game theoretical standpoint. Like, can they work? But like my interactions, like I was playing so much in ESD, DSD. Like, I was an early investor of Basecoin back way back in the day. They got shut down, never launched. Like, they're fascinating. Like experiments that simulate like a central bank. But at the end of the day, like my foregone conclusion in these all these experiments is like largely, largely they kind of don't work. It haven't worked. And you need to have like this hybrid, like collateralized system. Uh, Frax has been probably the most successful in that. Uh, obviously, the criticism around that is that you know it's using a lot like USDC, and so it's like okay, well, it's not really decentralized. Um, but still, it's it's like it has like the ability to like modulate the level of collateralization based on like as as the market gets more conviction that this can work, then the the level of the collateral ratio kind of dynamically adjusts based on how the market perceives the level of risk. I've always kind of wondered, and I'd be curious to get your take is particularly in something like Frax or, or you, you ask the question, okay, what is enough? Like is 10% enough or do you need to go to 80%, 90 or hundred percent? And I think it's like a very interesting question for, for Frax. When I like, I was an early investor in Frax when I was a Parify, and I think Sam's like a really confident, like thoughtful guy, but I am wondering like if it, the idea is like you start at like, 100% collateralized and then you go down as as you prove out and as it becomes stable, right? But it felt to me like, you know, you're really kind of, it's like a known unknown. Like you, you might reach a level of collateralization that at some point you test it and you break. And once you break, the problem with these things is that once you break, you lose a lot of trust. And I argue that it's hard to recover from that. And a lot of it has been look at ESD and DSD. Now they, it's different an unfair comparison, but I do think that like, as it relates to like a uh, stable coin, as soon as you break the peg, you lose a lot of trust. And I, I would think that I'm curious if you think that like you ever recover from that fully. Now, obviously we've seen episodes where dies been under collateralized and you know, March and I was, <laughs> I didn't sleep for like a week trying to fix that. And we added USDC as collateral and maker and it was contentious. Uh, and then you've seen USDC like lose its peg, uh, largely an Oracle problem, but nonetheless, like I'm curious for these kind of hybrid or kind of algorithmic stable coins. Do you think that like, once you break the peg, do you ever recover from that? Well, I mean, MIM broke its peg a few weeks ago. Right. And, and, it seemed to be no big deal at all, which surprised me. I thought it was going to be a lot more dramatic, but that might just be my, my, the way my trad five brain works. Um, but that is kind of the, the problem with, with the idea of a peg is that it's, it's binary, right? Um, like I think, uh, uh, Jim Bianco had that, that 
good thread on on uh, stable coins the other day and but one 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 part of it that I didn't totally get was that he was like for tether he was saying uh, the uh, collateralization doesn't matter because no one ever redeems it well yeah but it you know this is like that's like saying you know in 2008 that uh, the the price of real estate you know the price of houses never go down because they never have well yeah they they haven't until they have right so uh, um, yeah the 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 peg risk is always going to be a risk even if it never happens if that makes any sense what's your take on like these other flavors of stablecoins that say well let's not think of a peg as a binary thing let's just have floating based on some inflation or what have you like float and some of these things where it's like you know to, i think like the human brain and consumer behavior is very much tied to like you want the certainty of a peg and you want the certainty of you know one the usdc is one dollar or what have you or reference asset but i am curious if you ever think that like these like more floating like non-fixed peg stable coins will ever will ever kind of work uh, I mean, I think I think there's loads of interesting experiments. Well, maybe not loads. A few, um, like I think uh, Sparex, I think is really interesting. Um, FPI, I think is really interesting. Um, so I think it's great that there are all of these different ones that we're experimenting with, and and we're gonna figure out what works by by trial and error. Um, I even think the ohm forks were like a really worthwhile uh, effort, uh, even though they kind of you know they look bad and 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 in hindsight and they're easily labeled ponzi's or whatever but i think it was like a really good thing to try to figure out you know figure out if you can if you can create a reserve currency that's that's based on you know crypto native assets um i don't know but which which ones did you have in mind the one that i'm close to and you know full disclosure i was invested in as i found the team pretty thoughtful is float um which is saying a well like you know let's just make it in a like in a you know bit anchored on some sort of reference like inflation or what have you which or purchasing price index or whatever which i think is interesting it, it's I, i'm not sure i i will truly believe that that will so ever this is become a like a massive market stable coin santi if i exactly. understand that correctly yeah, it's floating. Okay. It's floating. i don't know much about yeah, yeah exactly but i mean it sounds like it's pegged it's just pegged to something else pegged something. It, it's pegged to something else but it, it has more more leniency to like adjust and it's the same with like, 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 okay, NFTs, right? You think of NFTs, the floor of NFTs are priced in ETH. And so that's fluctuating, right? But still, okay, it's pegged to whatever ETH as a reference asset, but the value of that pretty much changes, right? Um, and so, whereas I think it's a different, it's more like the psychological perception. Like you always want the certainty of like what things are worth. And it's difficult sometimes to then think about stuff in not fixed terms obviously you could argue in the metaverse that might work which is like you're pricing stuff in, in an economy in eth terms now of course eth is a volatile asset so but still you don't necessarily think like that because you purchase these nfts first of all in eth basis so you're you're thinking of that in eth terms not like us us terms all right friends quick break to share some exciting updates from avalanche one of the leading l1s First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs. The first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out. ParticleCollection.com. Number two, an ILO. 
initial litigation offering has started on Avalanche in partnership with Rival, Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. So let's, I mean, let's bring this back into Terra because I think it's, I think there are a couple more interesting things. I think there are some other interesting things here. Like one is there are, we've seen pretty much two, stable coins need two things, right? They need reserves and they need demand. And Byron, you, meant, you mentioned Ohm and their forks. Ohm started with the reserves. And so you can either start with the reserves or you can start with the demand, right? And Ohm kind of started with the reserves. And they said, how can we get people to deposit to build our reserves? And they had obviously different, models and basically like giving people money uh, and yield to get to get to build up the reserves and that model of starting with the reserves i mean it's all a big experiment but maybe maybe it doesn't work that well Terra did the opposite instead of starting with the reserves they started with the demand right they partnered with folks like chai and things like that and i think the the issue has always been this like this luna death spiral right and like how do you collateralize it so so basically, I think the death spiral is that um, if Luna goes down, it can death spiral because it can be redeemed for a dollar, right? A broader bear market causes the sh- causes Luna to fall in value. UST holders fear the peg breaks and sell their UST. More Luna gets minted, leading to further price decline. And I think that Terra's thought by raising a billion dollars here is that... Uh, this should hopefully provide an additional avenue to maintain the peg in these can like in these kind of contractionary cycles that we're in, which will reduce the reflexivity of the system if you've got a billion dollars backing it up. And then I think you raise, I think it's interesting that they raised a billion dollars in Bitcoin and not in USDC because that is the best way to actually create a decentralized stablecoin. Uh, because obviously USDC is reliant on still fiat and still the US dollar. So raising in Bitcoin is probably the best way to maintain this, like, uh, you know, actually build this decentralized stable coin. So I don't know. Do you guys think this is a, uh, do you guys think this works? Do you guys think like, what are your, what are your thoughts on just how this impacts this like hypothetical death spiral and, and UST's adoption and all this kind of good stuff? Look, I mean, I think all of these are experiments. Um, and they're constantly, every incremental kind of shock that these things are able to absorb and withstand it gives you higher certainty that you know like everything greater lindy i think the the issue that i've had with a lot of just stable coins like non-collateralized stable coins that they're mostly like ponzinomics and then like they typically break and people lose interest and move on to the next higher yielding kind of ponzi um but what's interesting about terra is that it has like underlying demand that is non-speculative meaning for e-commerce like you look at chai and that's always been kind of my, when I, like the thing that I monitor the most, ultimately these stable goods need to have non-speculative use cases. And I think Terra probably has, is the one that has the most out of all of them. And so I think that that's ultimately like what you need for these things to be successful. Otherwise, 
they're just another farm. They're just another way to earn, like some, some, like attract a lot of speculators, which is really fragile. It's just when I look at that, I, I'm very skeptical. I need to see underlying non-speculative demand for a stable coin to then get conviction that it might work. I think that was the the whole idea behind Luna was that they, you know, he used some clever tokenomics to buy time while he built an ecosystem that would. Uh, create enough natural demand for UST, right? So, you know, pre this mini collateralization, it was basically UST was collateralizing Luna and Luna was collateralizing UST, which is, I don't know what, that's like, you know, lifting yourself up by your own bootstraps or something like that. Um, So like when I saw the collateralization news, I kind of took that as like, okay, the, the ecosystem is not developing fast enough to create the organic demand. So now he's trying to buy some more time with this this Bitcoin um, uh, collateralization. Yeah, my, my take on this is this is incredibly good for Terra and the whole ecosystem and Luna as well, right? Because now the biggest problem, like the main reason that these decentralized stables uh, and like seniorage uh, based stables have not worked in the past is because of the um of this like death spiral and so but now instead of being required to mint luna to arbitrage the ust prices you can now swap ust to btc instead and so now like the largest risk for the peg has been minimized and that's i think that just like a it's important for the long-term sustainability but b it decreases this the psychological resistance uh to using ust over what others perceived to be like safer stablecoin options, like maybe a US, uh, USDC or something like that. So I don't know. I think uh, also just like by having the ability to swap into BTC now, you no longer have to print more Luna, uh, which then will bring value to Luna because you don't have to, in times of contraction, you don't have to, there's less Luna that gets minted into circulation. So I, th- I think this was a really smart move. NFTs, another big month. Um, this was an interesting chart in my mind. Um, this is Ethereum sale, uh, just like Ethereum sales and Ethereum volume, basically. And what you're looking at is the black line here uh, shows the number of unique buyers and the blue line is the number of unique sales. So actually since like September or maybe November, the number of unique sale, uh, the number of sales, total sales is actually staying decently flat, maybe it's up a little bit, but the number of unique buyers continues to climb month over month. And so, I don't know, I was having this debate with Mike last night, like, are we bullish or are we bearish on NFTs right now? And the bullish arguments, there's a lot of bullish arguments. One, you could say that the Coinbase NFT marketplace, like there's over a million, I think, users on the wait list already. That's not baked in probably. Another bullish thing, gaming NFTs are coming this year. That's really bullish. Another thing, uh, the total NFT market cap is still microscopic it's like 20 billion compared to 1.8 trillion for the spot crypto market and that just seems too small to me so that's really bullish on the other hand it feels like every area of the market has pretty much popped uh and has like retracted maybe 50 60 70 percent except for nfts so santi I'd, i'd go to you first where are we in the nft market cycle oh man i mean is there even a cycle like i i mean i i i don't NFTs are like collect like collectible markets. Uh, of course, I think there has been a lot of speculation. A lot of people that are like borrowing against their ETH to buy NFTs and play this NFT drop musical chair games. Like I've inspected a lot of wallets. A lot of them are using leverage to buy liquid assets. I'm like, they just never will end well. 
Um, we'll see. I mean, it's been pretty impressive. The volume, some of these floors have held up pretty well. Um, on one end, like on a, on a more secular basis, I think NFTs have captured the imagination. It, it was so in your face last year that I think uh, like NFTs are not going away. There's a lot of the quality is probably going to go up as you see more higher quality brands have a strategy. You might buy a physical item. You might get printed an NFT. But I do worry, like, I think right now in this market condition, you're going to be testing a lot of the illiquidity. Like, what people are going to learn the hard way what an illiquid asset looks like. And you trying to sell an illiquid asset in this market environment is going to be very painful. And so I just, for a while, I've been cautious about NFTs. Like, I'm not, you know... I, from a speculative standpoint, I see a lot of speculation. Um, and I think these floors are going to, for a lot of these, it's going to collapse. Like there's just too much supply. And honestly, a lot of these projects are just, I don't know, pretty low quality from my, my in my estimation. But look, it's just one one man's opinion. Like, I don't know. I'm not an art expert. Is there, is there any risk to the risk of crypto if like the, if the lower quality half of the NFT space just collapses? Will that matter for crypto? I think it does set us back on the margin, right? Because it's like new users. A lot, a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of the NFT market is different user base than perhaps the more like sophisticated trader, like you know. Um, but you know, you know, it, it sets us back, of course. Byron, what are your thoughts on the NFT market right now? I feel like you just started dabbling. I have only just started dabbling. It is a lot of fun. Is one thought. Um, uh, it has been sort of minimally correlated to the rest of crypto, which is which is a good thing. Um, but I do wonder, like how how sustainable that is. Um, I think I mean a large part of that I think is just because it's, they're so hard to sell, right? When markets go down and you're losing money, you sell what you can, and your NFT is probably not one of those things, right? There's either no bid or a very low bid for it, um, which is also kind of you know which is can also be a good thing. Like I you know half of my personal investment portfolio is in property largely because I can't sell it. You know, I, I can't panic out of it at the lows, which is excellent because I am prone to panic out of panic out of things at the lows. Um, so I actually think that's a, you know, a, a feature, not a, a flaw of NFTs. Um, but if people are getting leveraged in it and stuff, then that is, that could obviously end badly. Yeah, um, I guess my, I mean, Santiago just uh, just just touched on it, but um, you know, one question I have is uh, like how much of an overlap there is between uh, NFT owners and the rest of crypto, because uh, it definitely seems like there are you know different users and different objectives and different use cases for for uh, for NFTs, and to the degree that uh, you know, to the degree that there is less overlap between nfts and cryptos than it's a than, than you know in crypto generally than that that is a, a bull case for nfts i think one of the interesting things that comes to nft i i'm actually still quite bullish on nfts from here i mean the coinbase marketplace is really i don't think it's priced in uh gaming nfts are coming this year uh, and then also just i had lunch yesterday with this team from bridge split finance it's basically they're helping uh they raised from like uh who was it like packy mccormick and uh Solana, Coinbase, Jump, CoinFund, uh, they're helping to do find just improve like financialization of NFTs. There's $20 billion worth of NFTs right now sitting kind of idle in wallets. You can't lend against them. You can't really, they're, they're these like dead assets. And I think that uh, 
folks like bridge split and fractional and people like that will help to bring, will make these like uh, real financial assets and that you can lend against, borrow against. And I think that's just good for the market. So that's what, that's what they said about, uh, you know, CLOs and CDOs and everything in 2008. Right. <laughs> I will say I was sitting there at this lunch yesterday being like, all right, so we've got NFTs, we've got fractionalized, fractions of the fraction of the nfts and then we put derivatives on top of these nfts i'm like oh boy oh boy <laughs> there's a fine line between uh capital efficiency and capital disaster yeah yeah exactly um all right one of the last things i want to talk about is just this coinbase hack i i just think this was a wild story that got like barely any attention obviously like shout out to uh who's who's the white hat hacker tree of alpha on twitter just like I don't know. Did either of you guys follow this that closely? This hack? I mean, this this thing definitely underpaid. Yeah, I mean, 250k probably should have gotten paid more. But like, I mean, this thing could have tanked the market 60 percent. Like, if this happened, like this, uh, I I I don't know. I just feel like this should have gotten more attention. Was there was there a limit to how many Bitcoin he could have sold? I know, I know. I mean, I read that he he was going to be able to just naked sell Bitcoin without anything against it. Um, but is there any, I, was there any indication no, of how I much could he infinity I mean, Bitcoin? I mean, he said that it could have, he could have traded, um, like there could have been, a, it could have been a multi-billion dollar bug, but he didn't, he didn't do it. So grossly underpaid. Yeah. Grossly underpaid, but that's, that, that's all right. I think, um, here's my take. So OpenSea also got hacked this week or it wasn't like, um, I don't know if it was hacked. I don't know if it was hacked. Actually, it felt like more. I think it was a phishing accident on thirty-two users. Yeah, that's the that's the wrong thing to say. Is that OpenSea got hacked? The hacker used this helper contract to call the, an OpenSea contract that was deployed like four years ago. But it was a phishing attack. Um, the I think the take here though is that like the security of a lot of these crypto platforms now depends entirely on wallets that have pretty universally poor security ux and there's very little that the the platforms like the open seas can do about it so open sea like the open seas of the world are entirely they can, they can build this amazing platform but they're entirely dependent on a lot of the wallets out there right now um and i think just like there's this guy dimitri tokarev he's the ceo of copper um and copper he spoke at our das london event and he said this thing that stuck with me which is like crypto has grown 10x really really quick to, quickly in the last 12 months but the security has not grown 10x and so i think just coinbase OpenSea, a lot of these things uh wormhole right these are all reminders that like things break when you grow too quickly and like we need we do need to spend more time focusing on just security and stuff like that security is a lot of things what do you mean by security talking about like personal security like 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 okay it's incumbent on, on users to understand like security right like everything you, you you could have a really robust uh, no, security. Sorry, actually, I disagree. Sorry, I disagree. No, 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 hold on. Wait a minute. Like, yeah. you, you can go on Gmail. If you're not using a password manager, you're using your birthday or some sort of identifiable piece of information, like password 1234. I'm sorry, but that's on you. So I like, shouldn't be doing that? 1234? No. No. I well, agree. Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? Like, the thing about this space is there are protocols, there are best practices in security. Whether you want to follow them or not, that's on you. And this space transfers a lot of responsibility over to the user, a lot of which are not prepared for that. And so that, that I'll push back because look, I, you either learn it the hard way 
And it's a little bit like flood insurance. Most people may start with a small amount. Imagine if you invest in the ICO of Ethereum and you put in 20,000, that 20,000 is now worth millions. Your security practices should go up in line with the value of your portfolio. And so, so like I'll push back on that. Now, are we perfect? No, I agree with you. There should be better key management solutions. There should be better education and awareness. And there are some contracts. I think OpenSea like is migrating contracts to make them like, okay, like when you're signing a transaction from like, you know, perhaps a ledger or something like readable data that might simulate the transaction before it goes through to understand like, you know, what things are actually happening before they do. So I like, I'm excited about that. I invested in a protocol called chaos lab, a company called chaos labs. that is kind of like gauntlet, but like simulating a lot of these smart contracts and pro like protocol upgrades to, for, to allow teams to say, okay, we're going to operate say Aave V2 to V3. In, before deploying it, you can simulate and stress this a lot of these variables and like new protocol changes. So like, like I agree with you. I'm not like, but but I think it's like always important to say like users should like take the time to like beef up their security practices. Like I think there was a survey by Punk Six Two Five Nine. I think my hoodie brother, and like most people don't even have a hardware wallet. Like okay, like if you don't have a hardware wallet, and by the way, anyone listening, go get a hardware wallet today. Unless you have like less than like a thousand dollars, even like, okay, like a hardware wallet, it's like 80 bucks or so. I'm investing in this company called Wonky, which is like going to do a hardware wallet for like 20 bucks. Literally just in a form function of like an, like a super nice and slick, like iPod mini of sorts. Go get a goddamn hardware wallet. Okay? That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have helped the person who got fished in OpenSea though, right? No, I, I agree. Totally. Like if you get fished like that, that that's very, well, yes, because irrespective of that like if you're signing a transaction and it could be blind signing then you allow someone else to just call that contract and you know transfer those nfts in your wallet to another wallet that's what ended up happening here so but blind signing was i, I think um it would have been interesting and we i'm not an expert here but it would have been perhaps if you would have understood what you're signing you, what you're actually signing and the permissions that you're giving based on that signature, then perhaps you wouldn't have done it. And I think that this is where OpenSea is migrating a different standard to, to protect users, at least to give them a greater level of awareness of what they're signing. Because most people just are signing and like literally clicking. I mean, if you're clicking and signing so many transactions per day, at some point, you kind of like, most of the time, like become like less paranoid about what you're signing. It's just like, oh, another signature. Oh, it's in my workflow. and it becomes behavioral and habitual. And it's like, oh, this is another signature. It's open to you and like, boom, but it, it's just one bad click and you're done. Like, and that's scary and angry. So is, does OpenSea have some, uh, some, some culpability here? I actually don't know. And I don't think they do. A lot of people came out very quickly saying, is OpenSea going to re like reimburse? But in this case, I mean, if it's a phishing attack, like, I don't know. Could they have done things better? Do you, do do you think that they that, do you think that there's culpability here on OpenSea side? Uh, I don't I don't think so personally. I haven't gone that deep into the details. So I probably shouldn't even express the, the, that. There is a great thread by uh, Nadav, who used to be a Dharma, and I now is at OpenSea. He's a CTO of OpenSea, and so we'll link it in the show notes. But I think he he probably was a very balanced. He's like sharing a technical rundown of the phishing attack of OpenSea, 
Um, he said, look, even though it appears the attack was made from outside OpenSea, we're actively helping affected users. Uh, I don't think it's an admission of guilt. I think it's just doing the right thing. Um, and so they're call they're definitely calling an OpenSea contract, obviously, but you know, once you sign something, you give permission to someone, but that that's not like that's not OpenSea's fault. He does talk about um like prior to the current phishing scam, part of why we elected to implement EIP seven one two on the new contract is that EIP seven one two type data feature makes it much more difficult for bad actors to trick someone into signing an order without realizing it. For example, if you are signing a message to join a whitelist, a raffle, or a token-gated Discord group, and you're presented with a type data payload referencing Wyvern, the protocol used by OpenSea, it is much more likely to alert you, like this new EIP-712 is much more likely to alert you to something unusual going on. So, okay, could they have implemented EIP-712 earlier? Would they would that have mitigated this phishing attack? Not really. I mean, ultimately, you can help the user by alerting, by like, okay, so this EIP makes it much more difficult for people to blind sign, which I think is a big problem, right? I mean, I think like even like sophisticated people like the, the Nexus Mutual founder, Hugh, which was super sophisticated. I mean, he's a sophisticated guy. He, he got, there was a fake MetaMask deployment in his, he was using a hardware wallet. And if you remember, he was going on Nexus, his flow was the same, but you know, he, he, he signed a transaction um, that diverted and just was calling a different type of contract that I think drained his account. And it, it was really, I mean, sadly it was because all of this could have been mitigated. He was using a hardware wallet. All of it could have been mitigated if he inspected the contract that he was calling. Right. Anytime you sign a transaction, you can go in there. Like this is the best practice. And he's a great thread about it. These are my learnings. Had I clicked on the type of contract, I would have known that this was like a malicious contract. And so could a normal user click on a contract? Absolutely, man. When you're signing MetaMask, you know exactly which contract. Okay. So you double check so you double check every contract every time. Anytime you're signing a transaction, go look at the contract. Always. When you're giving permission, go look at the contract. And understand what that contract is doing, or at least like say if that contract like it's like two things that I'll I really like. MetaMask now allows you to white like like nickname a particular contract. So if you're using a Uniswap, you're using Sushi or whatever protocol you're using a lot, just add a nick. The same way that you have a bookmark in your browser, you can kind of add a bookmark to a contract. So if your MetaMask client gets compromised because you click a link and whatever. And if you're and you're gonna go back to Uniswap and and you're gonna click on in a contract that you never used before, then it's gonna show very clearly because it's not nicknamed, whitelisted, like bookmarked. So MetaMask, that's a new feature. Of MetaMask, that's great. Um, and so definitely like add those nicknames to contracts that you're using frequently. And when you're using a new contract, like when you're calling a new contract because you're going on a new protocol or like a new NFT drop or whatever, or a farm inspect the contract. And if you're not a security expert and you don't know how to read a contract, well, ask, go to the Discord and at least ask. Or even tweet, be like, hey guys, I don't know what I'm signing to. Like, has anyone used this contract before? 
And I think the nice thing about the space is there's a lot of white hackers out there. If you tweet, hey, guys, I'm going to use it. Has anyone been on this site and called this contract? I don't know what it's doing. Can someone help me? Man, I guarantee you, you're going to get responses in, within five, ten minutes because people genuinely in this space are out there to look out for each other. And so that's all. I mean, it, there, there are, we should at some point link to some great resources like my crypto, like Tay, fantastic. I mean, she's one of the best people out there in the space. She is always calling bullshit and like making sure people understand what they're doing and, and raising awareness and education. Nadav's thread is great. Like there are just best practices and it's, it's just honestly most, most hacks that I've observed absent, like key, like, like obviously like rock pulls and, bad code like of, at the protocol level which has happened like oracle problems like that i understand like that that's problematic i think we should always be very careful around that but most other hacks especially in the nft land has been like seed phrases being compromised because people are not using hardware wallets and using hot wallets or are not taking the time to understand what they're signing and we just need better education on that like there's there's just no Man, if you have a board ape that's like the floor is 100 ETH, like, all right, man, like, beef up your security. You should always understand that people, it's not a question of, I think, like, who, who was it said it? It was not a very comforting answer. It's like, it's not a matter of, like, if you will hacked. If, you, if you're going to get hacked, it's a matter of, like, are you important enough to be hacked? You Selkin should always said that, I think, or Mike Dudas or something like that. So, someone said this. Yeah. I don't know, but it was like Hillary Clinton. Obviously, when she got compromised, it's like, yeah, like if you're a politician like that, if you're a reporter, like you just know that you're a high profile individual. And like, likewise, if you have if you have an, a wallet that has meaningful value, like you're a target. So just be careful. But crypto is gonna have to get a lot more dummy proof than that if it's ever gonna go mainstream. But I think right? there are like there are people are rolling out dummy proof ways. Like Coinbase launched uh, Coinbase vaults, right? So like you can have a multi sig within Coinbase, basically. Like you can turn on like let's say Byron, you have X amount of money at Coinbase, you can put that into your Coinbase vault, and then if you ever want to take it out of the Coinbase vault, you can add. Uh, you you would basically add people as like signees to the vault so you could add like four other people and if you ever needed to take it out you'd have to like text your sister and your mom or something like that to sign on it so or your dad and your brother whoever it may be trusted people in your life yeah so never, i would never trust my sister and my mom with that <laughs> i actually well, think byron, most, that yeah. byron that, that that that's not a problem with crypto sir that's, that's uh, something else <laughs> yeah, i'm sorry to break it <laughs> most problems in i think most problems in crypto end up coming not from like these black like these malicious hackers but from just like people's personal uh just moving too quickly like like byron you lost some crypto you you lost your private your uh, your seed phrase i'm pretty sure if i remember correctly or like Ooh, i i lost my luna seed phrase yep oh that's why you didn't want to talk about luna today so salty <laughs> so salty it was not it was a medium expensive lessons I, it wasn't i did the stupidest bad. thing the other day i uh i sent usdc from somewhere to somewhere on different networks. Like I sent like a USDC on ETH to like USDC on, I forget what it was, on Solana or something like that. Could you have done that though? Like, because typically yeah. it doesn't recognize it as about like the, the the taxonomy of the address of Solana is different. If you are sending it from uh, like a Coinbase to a Gemini or something like that, they have like preventions in place, but I was using less like uh, built out platforms like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to want to transition into obviously like, okay, macro is, is 
day like today, you know, crypto markets are down substantially. There's obviously a situation in Ukraine, which is super, super unfortunate. And look, I mean, I think we're not, it's, it's very saddening. I am quite sad today, like that we have wars in 2022. Um, but you know, uh, there's no hot takes here other than like, it's a very unfortunate situation. Obviously crypto markets are super correlated and are risk on assets and there's a shock. But, um, like someone asked me this question yesterday, I was on another podcast and I was on the other side and I kind of developed this framework, which is like, everyone's like, okay, do you think crypto dies? Like what happens to crypto in this environment? Like there's all these kind of simulations that you can do in your brain. But like I pushed back and I said, look, the biggest risk of this industry, Byron, this kind of alludes to what you were saying earlier is not so much like an exogenous shock to this industry. It's more so self-sabotage within this industry. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot that we can do as an industry. I think the biggest risk of crypto derailing and setting us ourselves and setting this industry adoption and success back is just stuff that we can control. Like, you know, the wormhole hack would have like set us, it had jump, not bailed us out. They would have set us back years. Solana could have gone down. Like now could we have mitigated that? There could have been things that we, you know, I think that's where we need to be super critical. Instead of pontificating on macro and like Swift and, and like the circumvention of Swift using Bitcoin rails and the geopolitical chessboard is something that none of us, I mean, I'm not an expert and none of us can control. It's certainly interesting because macro and like Bitcoin and like this is sort of the purpose of, I think like if you read the sovereign individual, it's very interesting to think about crypto in this like multi-generational transformation of a redistribution of power and power to the individual and self-sovereignty and all this stuff. But like that is kind of like, it's a beaten horse. Like everyone talks about that. Not a lot of people talk about, okay, what is the stuff that we are not doing great as an industry? Because there's a lot of bullshit in this industry. There's a lot of things we can improve. And I think it's incumbent upon us to like mitigate this too big to fail. Like bridges, yeah, they pose a increasingly systemic risk to a lot of like the interconnectedness and the surface area is ever expanding and we need better insurance products. Like we need insurance on bridges. We need insurance on deposits. We need insurance on all kinds of stuff. And until we have that, this industry is not going to grow as much. And it, that is the number one handicap. And so like spend less time thinking about like, obviously it's, it's super important to like, you know, we were in a state of the world. It's fragile. Like, but still, as an industry, I think the, the biggest risk is not an exogenous shock, is something blowing up. And I think we need to be super focused, especially as more users come, to make it easy on them and to secure them. Because if we have another wormhole of stuff and we don't survive that, I'm sorry, but that's going to set us back years. Like, we're done. Game over. <laughs> Go home. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think let's wrap this up by saying I think we purposefully didn't uh, try to pretend like we we're geopolitical experts here talking about Russia and Ukraine, but, um, and it feels kind of just goofy to say thoughts and prayers, but like, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, I don't want to try to weigh in too much. And I think that people should probably just do something nice for someone else today. And, uh, yeah, honestly, just thinking about people out, uh, out in Ukraine and, um, yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap it. I agree, man. Byron, thanks for coming on. And I know there's a lot of really smart smart devs and teams that are based in Ukraine. Hopefully everything's okay there. And uh, if there's any way that we can do to help, please let us know. Agreed. All right, everyone. Be well. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy your Friday. And uh, we will see you next week.